socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, be sure to follow this podcast and share it with one friend you think might like it too. Maybe even go crazy and recommend it to two if you're feeling super generous. Now, in our discussions on the role of the US dollar in the global economy over the past couple of weeks, the story about Saudi Arabia looking into pricing oil in renminbi, the currency of China, has been mentioned a couple of times. The idea being that if China could buy and sell oil in its currency, it would degrade the influence of the dollar and the U.S. would have less leverage to shape policy in the region via sanctions. And given the impact this would have on geopolitics and on the U.S. economy, I wanted to find out what the likelihood of that happening actually was. So to answer this question, I asked Anas Alhaji, a world-renowned expert in the energy markets to help shed some light on the likelihood of this happening. And Anas's articles and the conversation you're about to listen to really helped me better understand the drivers behind energy markets, debunk a few theories we've discussed on this show before, and better understand where the dollar gets its power. We start off with a conversation about his education in Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Oklahoma. Oklahoma, okay. You are going to have to listen on to figure that one out. So why, why Oklahoma? When I graduated from school, I asked my, the chairman of the department where is the best place to uh, finish a degree in petroleum. And he said, give me a couple of days. And a couple of days later, he came back with a list of five universities. They are the top in the world. And Oklahoma was number one. I said, okay, I'm going to go for number one. And okay. I did go for number one. Oklahoma is no longer number one right now, but it's among the top four okay. in the world. So it wasn't, I assume it wasn't the college football that attracted you here then, huh? Well, later on, I learned about it. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, so they can, because yes. I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can go to school in Oklahoma and not at least be converted to college football. Well, my, my colleagues, my colleagues who studied with me basically from out of state, they came in because of Sooners. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, hmm. that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, let's, let's get on to the good stuff here, which is, the reason I, I was so interested in speaking with you is because we've been talking a lot on this podcast about the fate of the dollar, about the future of the dollar. Yes. One of the stories that came out that I'm going to ask you to address a little later on in our conversation is Saudi Arabia's recent hints that they might price oil in yuan, price oil in, in Chinese currency, which could, again, get around or, or potentially reduce the power of the dollar, which I want to get to in a, in, a, in a bit. But I think the first question I have for you, just to level set, is, is why is oil priced in dollars in the, in the first place? Uh, generally speaking, for any currency that we need to use to price oil in it, it has to have three major characteristics. And the first one is liquidity. The second one is low 
volatility. And with, within that low volatility, basically, we are talking about low risk in this case. And the third one is widely accepted worldwide. And the only currency that fits all of this is the dollar. Mm -hmm. Now, there's, there's something else, too, that we've discussed on this podcast before. And you, you have a bit of a different opinion, which is, you know, one of the things that's come up in a couple of episodes is the U.S. agreement with Saudi Arabia in 1974 to price oil exclusively in USD. And the, the two things that have been said is that this was an effort to shore up a floating dollar. This was also a secret agreement. But you say this is a conspiracy theory. The question is why OPEC continued to price its oil in dollar, although things evolved over time. And there are the three reasons that I mentioned, but there are other reasons. And when the United States decided to separate gold from the dollar, the dollar plummeted, and therefore their oil revenues in real terms plummeted, and they were looking for a way out. So they were studying this. They formed committees with cooperation with the World Bank, the IMF, etc., trying to solve this problem. And they looked at various options. And among those, all those options, the best choice was to stick to the dollar because all the other options are not viable. For example, one of the options is basket of currencies. Well, basket of currency does not work because OPEC members are scattered around the world and they have different trading partners. So the basket will benefit some and will hurt others. So the basket was not a good choice. Pricing it in another currency, there was no alternative to the dollar at that time. The euro came in later. But regardless, Pricing oil in single currency has the same problems, whether it's the dollar or the euro or any other currency. They looked at the IMF SDR, but it did not work simply because the, it's, it's almost like the basket. But they have to convert that SDR to some other currency anyway to buy things. Mm. So it did not work. So the oil was priced in dollar before that, and oil continued to be priced in dollar. So by default, the dollar was going to be the mechanism to price oil anyway. I think it is a conspiracy theory simply because there is not a single evidence until today to show that there is this type of agreement. People who are talking about it, let's say if there is an ambassador or there is someone who is talking about it right now, simply because they've been reading about it for 30, 40 years. Hmm. But I think what happened is the following. When the Saudis and others looked at all choices, and they looked at the dollar, they looked at substitutes, single currency substitute, they looked at the basket of currencies, they looked at gold, they looked at the SDR. They made the conclusion that probably the best way is to keep my oil in ground. And the reason why, because inflation was very high and real interest rate was very low at that time. Assets being confiscated in the West, so there is a fear of confiscation in this case. So why invest overseas? Their economies are very primitive. They cannot handle those oil revenues. So the only choice is to invest overseas, but the overseas choice is not good. So the best choice is really to cut production. At a time when everyone at that time was expecting oil prices will continue to increase and oil prices will go to $100. Remember, uh, oil prices were around 250 in early uh, in like 1972. They became $14 in early 1974, and now at 14, people are expecting prices to go to 100. 
So I can put it underground, wait until it's 100 and sell it. So there were many incentives to keep it underground. That caused a panic in Washington because prices quadrupled. Prices were very high. We had infla uh, inflation. We had unemployment. Economic growth was down and we had a recession. The whole world is suffering. So there was a panic in Washington. So they came up with a plan. I think the agreement in which there is a support for it, the agreement was that, look, you don't have to cut production. Continue your current production, and I will guarantee you an income for your money, a real income. If you invest in my treasuries, I will guarantee you a real income. And treasuries cannot be confiscated, like other assets. Yeah. So the Saudis being guaranteed an income, and that's where the agreement is. So in a sense, you can say it's indirectly it's related to the dollar, and indirectly supported the dollar. But there was no agreement keep pricing oil in dollar. The agreement was do not cut production and I will guarantee a real income for you. So to summarize this then, getting back to something you said. So for a currency to, to really be used effectively in the energy markets, it has to be widely accepted, it has to be liquid, and it has to be a low volatility. When and low volatility, low volatility, I want to emphasize this point because yeah. people will say, well, look at the euro. Low volatility includes low risk. The euro, we have so many countries, anyone can bail out and cause problems. Mm -hmm. In the United States, it's only one country. So low volatility means also low risk. Low risk, okay. And so Nixon floats the dollar. That, de that lowers the value of the dollar, which creates, a, which creates a problem for oil producing nations, but it also creates an incentive for them to hold on to the oil because the oil is going to be more valuable in another year and two years as inflation increases. They cut production, cutting production increases the price of oil and there's this whole spiral. And so it sounds to me in a lot of ways, the goal of the goal of this agreement was really to almost stabilize the dollar in a way or stabilize both markets. Is that? Indirectly, that, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, the, the second question I have for you, because you mentioned guaranteed income, and you know, obviously inflation was a lot higher in the 70s. I assume treasuries were paying a lot more. Treasuries are paying next to nothing now. So how is that guaranteed income working out for? It's okay. not working. Basically, we've yeah. seen them reducing their holding of treasuries for the last few years. Of course, one of the main reasons is not really the return. One of the main reasons, low prices. Uh, oil prices have been low since 2015. Yeah. And they needed the money at the same time. We've seen uh, Vision 2030. Vision 2030, basically, uh, they want to redirect the whole economy in a different direction. We've seen them establishing the sovereign fund. And the PIF basically is investing in everything, including electric vehicles. As you know, they own a large portion of Lucid. At one point, they were a part owner of Tesla. So they are investing all over the world. So there is a completely different vision now from the past. Understood. And are they doing that in anticipation of seeing demand for petroleum decline? Or is it more just to, again, diversify their, their Well, it, it is, it's mainly diversification. They still think that, yes, oil demand might decline in total, global oil demand. But for their own oil, the demand will continue because their cost is so low that even if the global oil demand declines in the future, the demand for Saudi oil will continue without any problems. That's why they think the last drop of oil that will be used in the world, it will be a Saudi oil.
Yeah, because they because th there's a lot of talk about how the U.S. is now the world's biggest oil producer, but we also have a fraction of the reserves the Saudis have. Correct. So they're just correct. So jumping over to the to the yuan, then you know, there was that report by the Wall Street Journal that indicated the Saudi government was looking into pricing oil in yuan and, and selling it in yuan. What, what's the likelihood that would happen? If you look at all the countries that switched their revenues, and here I would like to emphasize a very important point for the listeners and those who are, who are watching. We have to distinguish between pricing oil and oil revenues. Oil pricing has been in dollar, and it is still in dollar, and will continue to be in dollar in the near future or the foreseeable future. But revenues could be in any currency. So the mechanism for pricing oil is in U.S. dollar no matter what. But a country can ask for revenues in any other currency, depending on the contracts they have. And even if the contracts are in dollar, they can take the dollars and they can convert those dollars to other currencies. So the, the threat to the dollar is really coming from the conversion, not from pricing. And therefore, the rumor, and this could be, by the way, a leak because it happened just two days before the Europeans and the Americans arrive in Riyadh. So it could be a leak. If you look at the countries that switch revenues, all of them were under US sanctions. So Saddam Hussein did not price his uh, Iraqi oil in Euro. Saddam Hussein asked the UN and therefore the US to convert the revenues, the same thing for Venezuela, the same thing for Iran. Now we are seeing it in Russia, etc. So it's the revenues they are converting not the pricing. And the second thing to watch here is this, that all the countries that did this suffer from US sanctions. Saudi Arabia does not have sanctions. And the question that needs to be answered, even academicians basically should chip in and, and investigate this, is whether in a free market with no sanctions, countries have incentives to switch. Mm -hmm. Because we don't see any country on its own that is switching without a threat basically of sanctions or having sanctions. So the Saudis, if they switch to Yuan, they will be the only country in the world that is switching with no sanctions on it. But the move itself does not make sense. And that leak probably kind of a superficial leak for a simple reason. The Yuan, as you know, is pegged to the dollar within a certain range. And the Saudi real is fir firmly linked to the dollar and pegged to the dollar. So basically, it just does not make any sense to go to the UN while everything is pegged to the dollar anyway. She cannot make even a political statement on this because the Biden administration will be laughing. It's, it's priced the same regardless, essentially. Correct. And the other issue is, assume that the UN is free, completely free, and they switch to it to influence the dollar, they are shooting themselves in the foot because lower dollar means lower real, a lower real means lower real price for imports, and therefore the real value of their oil exports decline. Mm -hmm. So it does not make sense to make that, that switch, even if the yuan is free. I want to get go a little further here, but there's one question. There's something you, you said that I, I just want a little more detail on, which is you mentioned it's not the pricing, it's the conversion. Can you, can you explain why that's, that's a problem? Yes, because anyway, you look at, at the pricing, pricing uh, is going to be, if you look at WTI or Brent or others, it's price in dollar. 
Now, some people may say, hold on just a second. There is a yuan traded contract and, in Shanghai, and therefore that's a yuan thing, and therefore it is being priced in non-dollar. Well, if you do the investigation, which by the way, I, I think I am the only one in the world who did this, this work, and I think, or one of the exchanges did in-house study on this too and confirmed my results, which is the price in Shanghai in yuan is a mirror image of the Dubai exchange in dollars, once you count for time differential and quality differential. And therefore, oil is still priced in dollar no matter what. What we see in Shanghai basically is just kind of a cosmetic thing, some makeup in a sense, that make it look like it's yuan-based, but it's really dollar-based. But once a country basically get the pricing of oil in dollar, then now they want revenues and let's say if the revenue is $1 billion, they can ask, well, give me that $1 billion in euros or give it to me in yuan or give it to me in any other currency. Mm-hmm. And that's a completely different game from pricing oil. So it sounds like, it sounds like given that oil is still going to be priced in dollars, it makes sense for, for a lot of countries to just hold dollar reserves for the purpose of that transaction if their currencies are a little more volatile. Well, this so. is here, probably we need to elaborate on this a little bit more right. here because a lot of people are predicting a total collapse and mostly they trade gold and gold traders would love to see that. They are trying to kind of sell something and that's, that's a problem when you are trying to sell something and promote ideas at the same time. I've done a lot of work on black markets in several countries. And from that, from that field work, I came to the conclusion that if you are dealing even with illegal activities, with drug cartels or even those who sell weapons and all that stuff, and you put all kind of currencies on the table and tell them, pick up whatever you want in terms of currency out of this, the first thing they will choose dollar. They aren't going to use anything else now. In some areas in the world, like in Turkey, for example, because of the proximity to Europe, because of regional issues, and, and some Russian mafia, etc. they pick up Euro just because of the proximity to Europe. But generally, it's the dollar is still king even for the cartels, even for the mafia. And we've seen Russia, China, Turkey, and Iran form a coalition. And with that, within that coalition, they agree to trade in local currencies. They agree to trade in gold. They agree to barter. They agree to use cryptocurrencies. They experimented with all of them. Mm-hmm. And the main result was that they are trading in euro. And they are trading in euro simply because of the regional issues and because there is no trade, uh, regional issues for Turkey. There is no trade between Iran and the United States. So Iran needed the euro in this case. Russia needed the euro. So they ended up trading the euro. And that proves the point that crypto is not going to be the choice. Gold is not the, going to be the choice. In fact, we don't have even enough gold to trade. I mean, we have a lot of gold in the world but it's stored gold, it's not for trade. Mm -hmm. And therefore, gold cannot be uh, used uh, for trade in this case. You have just made a lot of Bitcoin maximalists really angry on us, so I am gonna make sure to share this one. Well, Um, you know, that will get you more clicks, hopefully. Absolutely, hey, look, (laughs) that's what it's all about, man. I I, I, I wanna jump over to to Russia, because you'd mentioned that earlier, and. Putin decided to price Russian oil in rubles instead of dollars in response to Western sanctions. Now, you say this is a mistake. Why, why is that? It's really, it, it's the gas, not the oil. The natural mm-hmm. gas that's been sold to Europe to non-friendly nations. Mm-hmm. 
And the first statement they made basically was they have to pay in ruble and they have to buy the ruble from the central bank. And I said at that time, this is a mistake. And uh, within two days, they realized those mistakes. The first mm -hmm. mistake is that the most, about 95% of the contracts with Europe, the currency is mentioned in the contract. About 58% is euro and, and the rest are in dollars. And since it is mentioned in the contract, you cannot violate the contract. And if Putin plays the game where you pay ruble or you get nothing, then they can take him to court or whatever institute they agreed to to settle those differences in the contract, but mostly it's going to be in Europe, and they can sue him. And since they already frozen the assets, they can take the money from the assets and they win anyway. In fact, under the current sanctions, they cannot even hire a law firm to defend them. So they can win and confiscate assets as compensation for those contracts. Mm. So they realize that they cannot break the contracts. On the other side, they have to buy, based on what Putin wanted, they have to buy the rubles from the central bank. But the central bank was on the list of sanctions. And therefore, no European can deal with the central bank. So there are two legal issues, and therefore it's not going to work. Within two days, they come up with a system. The system basically is, okay, Gazprom has a bank that is not uh, on the list of sanctions. So you can bring in your euros or dollars and pay Gazprom bank that money, and therefore you fulfill the contract. And that bank is going to convert it to rubles, and the same bank is going to create an account in your name, and you appear as, in front of the Russians as if you are paying in rubles, and you don't deal with the central bank anymore. That sort of like that sort of game seems to be playing with the current sanctions regime, correct? Because yes. even though there's the appearance that we're not buying Russian oil or Russian gas, there are actually little loopholes in place that are allowing Western Absolutely, so. absolutely. And then the, the other issue is there is not enough rubles for the gas trade. Again, we go back to the original issue of pricing oil, liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. There is not enough liquidity in the ruble because Russia exports a lot of gas to, I, I think based on my estimate, almost 50% of the ruble that exists in the world, that's the value of Russian exports in a year. So we don't have enough liquidity. So the central bank has to print ruble. So they come up with another fix within a week. And the fix basically is to price the ruble in gold until the end of June. So the, the, the ruble is not pegged to gold. And they are not going to do that mistake because if the, if the ruble is pegged to gold, you can literally take go, uh, ruble now and tell them, give me the gold. Mm -hmm. So they were smart about it and they said, we are going to price it in gold at a fixed exchange rate. So basically those who are claiming that the ruble value went up and therefore Putin got what he wanted, this is a fake exchange rate. Mm. This is not a market exchange rate because it's fixed to gold until the end of June. And what they are going to end up doing probably is do, repeating the same mechanism over and over until everything collapses. Because they cannot continue this for a long time. An assumption I've made and something I've, I've heard from a lot of people when they discuss the, the invasion of Ukraine is that it didn't make 
economic sense for Russia to do that. Do you agree with that statement? Because it almost sounds like at least from the standpoint of oil and gas, it's not really all that harmed by... That's a political that's question that I, I really, in a sense, I can answer it, but I would rather not because I would sure. like to keep focus on my field. Yeah. But I would like to warn from a statistical point of view, we have a serious problem we have to pay attention to here. Is It's not the comparison of what they lost, it's the comparison of what they would have lost in the future if they did not do it. Okay. And I think that will change the whole equation. So I'll, I'll jump out of that then, you know, I guess kind of get in, and that was leading into one of the other things I was thinking, which is, you know, there are situations where governments will do things that don't make financial sense, but make political sense at home. And when you look at OPEC, these are, you know, ultimately the people leading the production of oil are all political actors. Are there any political considerations within Saudi Arabia that might influence them to move away from the dollar, even if it means making less money? Well, a uh, couple of points here, since you mentioned politics, basically. The first one is when you talk about pricing oil. Think about it this way. They cannot, Saudis cannot switch the pricing for oil no matter what. And the reason why, because the U.S. is the largest producer of oil in the world right now and the largest market for oil in the, in the world, and it had the largest trading place for oil. So even if the Saudis said, okay, I'm going to use the yuan, for example, or what traders are going to do? They're going to look at WTI prices. They are going to look at what's happening in New York. They're going to look at the American oil. American oil is priced in dollar no matter what. And they're going to look at the exchange rate and say exactly like what the yuan in Shanghai. Say, so, okay, you chose to price it in, in euro. It's going to be priced based on the dollar, but we are going to use the exchange rate of that hour. Honest, it's it's rare I get into these conversations and I walk away calmer than I was when I entered them, but you're actually giving me a lot of reassurance here because it, it's it sounds to me basically like the dollar is so enmeshed in the oil market, both from the standpoint of the US as an oil producing nation, but also in just the fact that the dollar is is widely accepted, it's liquid, it's stable. And, and all those things really serve to shore up the, the dollar's position in the markets. I mean, is there anything, or I should say, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. The only time the U.S. credit rating has ever been reduced is when the U.S. failed to reach an agreement on raising the debt ceiling. And so there's a certain amount of polarization in the United States that could create some instability when it comes to the dollar. Is it safe to say that that problem, the problem of a potentially falling dollar is a problem for oil, all oil producing nations, given their economies are largely pegged to USD. Well, we've seen cases in the past where the dollar declined substantially and those countries suffered a lot. And there were calls even in Saudi Arabia. Basically, I counted at one time that over a hundred articles and columns in newspapers by Saudis and other experts in the Saudi media calling for a debug or reevaluating the the real relative to the dollar. So when the dollar declined, there is this push from those countries either to shy away from it or change the exchange rate. So the suffering is there, but it did not happen. The second point related to this is this, that in the past, the world reserve currency was the sterling, and before that was some Netherlands currency, 
and some Portuguese, and we've seen the Greek and the Romans and the, even the Islamic dinar at one point, uh, hundred of years ago, so, and all of those basically vanished. But if you look at when they vanished, it vanished with the collapse of the empire. It did not vanish because of little things or trade issues or debt ceiling or others, etc. Mm -hmm. so they vanished when the British Empire basically just vanished, when mm -hmm. the Greeks vanished, when the Romans vanished, when the Islamic Empire vanished. So in a sense, you need a total collapse of the United States for the dollar to disappear from the world stage as a reserve currency. So it's a chicken and egg question. And, and, and really, in this case, it sounds to me like, like it's the country first, currency second, and not the other way around. Based on my reading of history, basically, is that's, that's the case. And it's not only with this, basically. If you look even at the cultural impact, the art, the economic influence, etc., just kind of a whole. So even the, at the peak of any civilization, especially with the advancement of technology, you see even the language that comes with the technology that is exported to other countries is being used. For example, the word computer is used almost universally in all languages. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it was created in the United States with the English language and when it was exported, the, the technology was imported with its name. Mm -hmm. And this is very common to civilizations. When civilizations decline, even that part declines. So their language, uh, linguistic influence declines because the technology that's been exported basically is declining with it. So there are many issues. It's a whole package and the currency is one of them. Yeah. Well, Anas, you've been generous with your time. You've also been generous in commenting on things I didn't invite you here to talk about. So I really appreciate you answering my questions. If folks listening or watching want to dig more into energy markets and learn more about the, the mechanics that drive them. I, I'm going to put a link to your website. I'm going to put a link to that presentation you did on the Shanghai oil markets. That was actually something I looked at doing my research. Anything else you'd point them to? Uh, yes, basically my website has not been updated in a very long time, but still okay. has a wealth of information for those who, know, who want to know about at least the basics uh, of various energy, uh, especially when it comes to disruptive technology, because that's really uh, hyped in a way where it, it's hurting us today. And the I, I think one of the main sources is Twitter. My Twitter account, I'm very active on Twitter and I put a lot of material. Several of my colleagues do this. So that's one. The other one is I am working for a, a media outlet called Attaqa, A-T-T-A-Q-A.net which is the only energy-focused outlet in that publishes everything or kind of reports and news, etc. Okay. And I just would like to advise people that when you see my tweets or others tweeting in another language, please use the translate button. There is a wealth of information in other languages. And use the translate button in Twitter so you can get the translation and get the information. Sometimes there is breaking news even before or uh, waiters and before AP and uh, Wall Street Journal, etc. in Arabic. The other one is if you are using Chrome, for example, it's very easy to switch any website from any language to English. So if you see a news on Taqa that you like, you just switch, right click, and then you see translate, just translate to flip the uh, page and you can read whatever news there. So there is a, a tremendous benefits from using the translate function. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are asking why OPEC did not increase production and why they have the perception that OPEC is siding with Russia against Ukraine. And a lot of people are asking that question. And I do have an explanation for that. So if this is of interest, we can do it within like 
three, four minutes. Yeah, why don't I ask the question and then you can you can tee it up. One of the other criticisms of OPEC recently has been that they cut production. They did not. They, what they, what did. they did, they did not increase production enough. They have a plan. They wanted to increase production 400,000 every month until September. But they never were able to, to reach the 400,000. So they are increasing production, but some countries are not able to increase production at all. So the criticism is why Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Kuwait are not increasing production substantially because they have the spare capacity. Okay, understood. So, okay. so, so one of the one of the criticisms of of OPEC recently is that they haven't been increasing production in response to Russia's in invasion of Ukraine and what that's done to energy markets. And a lot of people are saying that OPEC is kind of indirectly helping Russia by doing that. What do you what do you say to that criticism? First of all, OPEC has been increasing production every single month. They, they did not cut production. And not reaching the goal they reached, basically, you cannot just judge them based on what their goal is. But let's face it, oil is a political commodity. Whether we like it or not, it is a political commodity. Even if OPEC try to disassociate this with politics, people will look at it that way no matter what. And oil, in fact, being a political commodity, any way you look at it, I've written about this for the last 20, 25 years or so, how political it is and all the political events that influence oil or how oil influence politics. But they got, OPEC got stuck, especially the Gulf countries uh, like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, they got stuck with this uh, thing in Ukraine. And the reason why, they don't want to appear as if they are supporting Putin. They don't want to appear they are the enemies of Putin at the same time. Why? Because OPEC Plus is, con contains 23 countries. Russia is one of them. Who are the, head, the heads of OPEC Plus? Saudi Arabia and Russia. But this agreement is not only about oil and managing oil production. It's way bigger than that. Think about it this way. Russia is a member of the security, UN Security Council. So all of a sudden now OPEC has a veto in the Security Council they never had before. And that veto is extremely important because we just had, just what, four months ago, we had a vote on climate change. And if that vote passes, those countries are doomed. It was Russia that vetoed that. So Russia is extremely important for the future of those countries because it's going to stand in the UN. And if you look at the statements of the head of the UN, I mean, the guy was always saying that uh, investing in fossil fuel is bad, is the worst thing that ever happened to humanity. He just said that last week. So the UN is going in a direction where without Russia, those countries will lose. Russia becomes very important to them. So it is, they have a veto at the Security Council through Russia. Russia is the only country that can stand up to Europe with their extremist views on climate change, especially imposing uh, carbon taxes on imports uh, of industrial products and petrochemicals and everything else. So Russia becomes very important for those countries and therefore they cannot annoy in this case. So yes, they did not support Putin publicly, etc. But at the same time, they don't want to annoy him because it's not in their interest. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, be sure to leave it a review and recommend it to that one or two or maybe even three friends you think might like it. I would also strongly recommend following Anas on Twitter, both for his insights 
on energy markets, but also for being able to access news in Arabic via the translate feature on Twitter. Just click translate on his Arabic tweets. It actually does a pretty good job. And there are a whole bunch of stories and information you won't get access to in the US doing this. Now, a couple of takeaways from this conversation. The first is that the currencies of oil producing nations and that of China are pegged to the dollar. So even if they chose to buy and sell oil in their respective currencies, it'd still technically be priced in USD anyway. Now, second is that the power of a currency is directly connected to the power of the nation issuing it. And the US dollar is widely accepted worldwide because of the power of the US economy and the military. The wide usage of the dollar reinforces this power, but it doesn't create it. Now, that out of the way, the use of the dollar has created instability in the past two decades via the creation of asset bubbles, increasing wealth inequality, and it's thought to be a contributing factor to the decline in worker productivity that's occurred since the financial crisis. And getting back to something I said in the last episode, economies are in essence about raw materials and work, and money is merely the way we divide it up. The money we exchange or the value of it doesn't change the amount of oil in the ground. Now that is an idea we are going to be exploring in our next few episodes, so I hope you will join me. You didn't think this was gonna stop at macroeconomics, I hope. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's producer and editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Uh, bye bye